This morning we reach the end of our journey through 2 Corinthians, which I hope you'll agree is Paul's warmest, most passionate, most vulnerable letter. It began with Paul walking his readers through their long relationship. Four letters, a couple of visits, as he pleads and urges them to side with him in the Lord Jesus. After getting an up-to-date report from Titus, he calls the church family to come good on their commitment to help their struggling brothers and sisters in Jerusalem by sending some money, chapters 8 and 9, before he finally takes on the false teachers who've been undermining his relationship, chipping away at it with the Corinthians in chapters 12 and chapter 10. And then he calls the church to be wise and to side with Christ above all things, as we saw last week. And then we come to the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, where this letter finishes beautifully, not with Paul on the defensive, but very much on the front foot. Paul assures the Corinthians of his love for them one last time as he calls them to press on for the sake of the gospel. So what can we expect today? We can expect God to gather together all that he's been saying to us through this book as he placards before us one last time what it means to love people like Paul as he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the time that we have, we're going to walk through this passage in seven steps as we see Paul's Christ-like love in action and hear him and God himself urging us to love like the Lord Jesus. So here's the first step. Love pursues. You'll see that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12. Read with me. Paul writes, Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And it will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to say a lot for their parents, but parents for their children. So I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you really love me less? Remember Paul's first visit to Corinth had seen the church planted. His second hadn't been quite so special. He always called it the sorrowful visit. But he hasn't given up. He said, I'll come back a third time. Why? Because what I want's not your stuff, but you. We've seen before, Paul's their spiritual father. He's the one who brought the gospel to the city and he hasn't forgotten about them or moved on from them. In fact, he's taking his spiritual parental responsibilities very seriously indeed. He says rather than sponging off them as a, as the, as a benefactor, he's their patron. Children shouldn't have to save up for their parents, parents for their children. Paul's committed to them as their spiritual father. He won't let them go. See, love always pursues its object. It always pursues people. It always takes a step towards people. Look at how that works out with Paul. I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Now just let that sink in for a second. This is Paul talking about the Corinthians, just about the most messed up church in the New Testament. But he's so committed to these half-hearted, confused believers who no doubt had hurt him deeply by believing all kinds of rubbish about him. He's still so committed to them that he won't stop pursuing them. He'll gladly pour out everything he's got for them. Now the irony is, you see hence in verse 15, they're so mixed up that as his love for them increases, it seems that their love for him decreases. But not even that will put him off. 
Paul pursues the Corinthians because he loves them. I think when we read things like that, we're going to stop and ask, what is it that produces this kind of love for people? This willingness to stick with people, to put up with people, to pursue people at such a real personal cost. Only one thing can do that to a person. And that's the discovery that we have first been pursued by someone else. Paul had experienced that personally when the same Jesus Christ whom he hated and whom he and his friends had, had hounded calmly caught up with him on the road to Damascus. And the end of one pursuit gave rise to the beginning of another. As Paul set out to be all things to all people in order to save some. You see, with unhurried yet breakneck speed, Christ himself has come looking for us. He's sought us, he's wooed us, he's won us, he's shepherded us. So in the same way that he's given himself for us, so we must lovingly pursue others. If Christ has pursued us and found us, then he will not give up on us. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, the great news is that Christ is pursuing you. And in a sense, all you need to do is to stop running away and accept his love to you. And if you are someone who's being pursued and found and, and gripped by Christ, then like me, you need to ask yourself, who, who is it that you're tempted to give up on? Who is it that you find it really hard to step towards but want to run away from? See, perhaps the first thing we need to do this morning is just to face the fact that love pursues it pursues us so that we might pursue others. But the second thing about love that jumps out of this passage is in verses 16 to 18. Love gives. We've seen over and over again in this letter that Paul went to great lengths to ensure that the Corinthians couldn't mix him up with the philosophers working the religious circuit for cash. It was so important to Paul that the freeness of the gospel is backed up by the fact that he's always giving, not taking. And that's the way of love. Now the ironic, ironic thing is that Paul got a hard time from the Corinthians overdoing this. They accused him of some kind of double bluff, pretending to be generous while somehow being on the make. And Paul's response, verse 16, oh, Be that as it may, whatever you think, I've not been a burden to you. Oh, Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you out by trickery. Did I exploit you by any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you. I sent our bro and our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Paul's response to their accusation is pretty straightforward. He points to his record and the record of his inner circle. They consistently acted with integrity and generosity. They constantly put themselves out for the sake of the Corinthians. Because love isn't on the take. Love gives. See, to be a Christian is to adopt a stance which makes us ready to give it a moment's notice. Why? Because of all that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was shown among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that turned aside anger for us. Beloved, John says, if God loved us like this, then we ought to love one another. Because God has given to us, then we give in love. And the third thing is in verse 19. Love not only pursues and gives, it also builds. Paul writes, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. If you want a statement that sums up everything we've seen in this letter about serving Christ by serving each other, his church, then this is it. Speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, we build each other up. You see, real ministry, real faithfulness is always accountable to God, you know, living to please him. It's always saturated in and motivated by Christ himself and as the clear aim of building up the church. See, everything that Paul said and did was done with a clear aim and clear purpose of building up the Corinthians. You see, for Paul and every other writer in the New Testament, the twin purposes of the church are reaching out in evangelism and strengthening, strengthening each other in edification, building each other up. We grow out, we grow up to the glory of God. The love of Christ pursues and gives so that he might build us. And he does that through using people like us to pour out his love on others. You see, this is your role and mine, and it will be for the rest of our lives, to share the gospel and speak the gospel into each other's lives so that we might be built up. It's our great privilege to fall into line with God's agenda. And once we get what God is doing in the world and in the church, then we'll pour ourselves, pour our hearts and souls into seeing people come to know Christ and then being built up in Christ. Now, I should just say that as it was for the Corinthians, when others are laboring to build us up, sometimes it feels more like being ripped apart because we may need to be confronted, corrected. But this is what love does. Love builds. And because love builds, by its very nature, that will set our agenda, shape our desires, binding us together in the local church in a way that will and must create in us a holy and thoroughly appalling discontent because we are committed to building up, to seeing the church grow as people are drawn to Christ and, and grow up as they're strengthened in Christ, it'll mean we're never quite happy. Because we'll always want to see more people come to know Christ. We'll always want to see people grow more quickly, more substantially in maturity. And when this upbuilding that love produces, when a flow of people coming to Christ isn't obvious, it will grieve us to the very core. And that's the way it should be, because the love of Christ that has mastered us pushes us to see others come to know Christ and built up. See, that means in any local church, if there's no desire and plan for evangelism, the real issue is we're short on love. 
If there's no sure, no thought of new initiatives, church plants or revitalizations or initiatives in and between churches, we're short on love. If there's no desire to see the gospel penetrate to the hardest parts of our, our towns and regions and our nation, then we're short on love. If there's no desire in us to see people sent to every part of the world to take the message of Christ, then we're short on love. If there's no concern to see people in our local church, in our growth group, grow in their maturity in Christ, we're short on love. If there's no concern to see people transformed and gripped by the glory of Christ, if there's no desire to walk with each other through the mess of life, we're short on love. See, Jesus said that we would be known by our love. And that's a love that pursues and gives and builds. Paul also says that this is costly because love mourns. You'll see that in verses 20 to 21. Paul writes, for I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want to be. And well, you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear they, there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many who've sinned earlier and have not repented of the, of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they've indulged. I once said, a slightly awkward conversation with my best friend from school. Through school, Glenn and I had been closer than brothers. And through those years, kind of my early years as a Christian, I owe Glenn more than I can ever say as we spurred each other on to live for Jesus and did a whole lot of other stuff that it wouldn't be appropriate to mention here. But then as time went on, he went and got a job. I went to university. I moved to Scotland and England. We kind of started to drift apart. We were groomsmen at each other's weddings. But uh, by the time about seven years after leaving school, I came back, um, uh, came back to live in Northern Ireland. We caught up again. Well, it was a little bit awkward. I suspect that we were both thinking, when I come, I may not find you as I want to be. We both desperately wanted the other still to be on track with the Lord Jesus. We, we still wanted to be like that. It was just a bit strained. I remember one kind of awkward conversation when we were kind of hedging around this area. And uh, Glenn asked me, he said, in the church where you're working, what do you study in your home groups? I said, what? He tried to sound kind of nonchalant as he asked me a trick question. He says, do you just look at kind of Christian books or DVDs? I said, we study the Bible, stupid. At which point he laughed in relief and we began to relate as normal human beings again. Okay. Now, at the bottom of that, all that awkwardness was a real desire that I thank God for. Glenn wanted me to be standing firm in the gospel. He wanted to make sure I hadn't lost the plot theologically when I went off to Scotland and England. And that's the kind of concern that Paul had. That when Paul saw someone drift away, he mourned deeply. When, so, when Paul saw the church in a mess, it wasn't so much that he was angry, it was that he was deeply grieved. See, Paul had put off his visit to Corinth for as long as possible. But even though he's still worried that there may be, well, you read the list, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, and so on. Now, 
his last visit had revealed that someone was sleeping with their mother-in-law and had to be excommunicated. See, these fears are real. In verse 21, Paul's concern is, he says, that when he shows up, all his past efforts, including writing 1 Corinthians, the longest letter in the New Testament, won't actually have solved anything. And he'll have to face the fact that he's done a rubbish job in planting the church and trying to help it get back on track. He knows that this will be humbling for him, but more than that, heartbreaking. He's scared there will be relational disappointment or dysfunctional relationships or sexual immorality or all of the above. And he really cares about it. I think this is probably the standout feature of 2 Corinthians. Paul cares desperately for these people, even though they've been the bane of his life. He rejoices when they're on track and he grieves when they've lost the plot. And I think for me, that's the single great challenge of this letter. To make sure that whatever else I do, whatever else happens, I pour myself into loving people with a love that pursues and gives and builds and mourns. So how do we do this? How do we love people following Paul as he follows Jesus? Let me just say, it's got nothing to do with your personality type, whether you're an INTJ or ESFP or PQRS or a reformer or a peacemaker or a hugger or a non-hugger. It doesn't matter. We all have the responsibility to love one another from a pure heart, to quote Peter. So how do we do that? Well, the key's actually simple. We need to die to ourselves to the extent that we're more concerned about others than we are about ourselves. It's not complicated. It's just hard. Especially when, like us, you're inveterately selfish. That you prefer to speak when you want to and be quiet when you want to. But you see, the gentle work of the gospel in our lives is to assure us of the love and safety and affirmation and acceptance that we have in Christ through faith and repentance that enables us to stop fretting about ourselves and thinking about ourselves and talking about ourselves, freeing up the spiritual oxygen we need to breathe freely, to see beyond ourselves, to think beyond ourselves, to ask questions, to listen to answers and to love and care with the rich mixture of mourning and joy that that brings. See, this is the, the depth of the love for one another that Christ produces in us. Which takes us to the fifth facet of love in this passage, where love confronts, 13 verses 1 to 4. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two witnesses that Paul quotes Deuteronomy 19. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I won't spare those who'd sinned earlier or any of the others, since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. That's a little bit tricky. There's a lot of discussion as to why Paul quotes Deuteronomy 19.15. But I think 13 verse 1 explains itself. Paul's saying that in effect his first two visits were like eyewitness reports. This next visit would satisfy the burden of proof that there was a real and ongoing problem in the church. Which, if that's still the case, needs to be confronted head on. And he's really clear. If there's blatant sin in the church, he'll name it and shame it. And for him... He says this is part and parcel of Christ working powerfully in his church through his word. Paul returns to the idea of Christ working through our weakness in 13 verse 4. 
For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. The logic runs like this. Christ embraced our weakness, dying in our place on the cross, but he's no longer weak. He was resurrected by the power of God. Paul says, well, in Christ, even though I is apostle and weak, when I explain his word, I speak with the resurrection power of God. Paul's human weakness, his humility, his brokenness doesn't stop him from acting to, acting to confront sin and ungodliness in the strength which Christ supplies, which is mediated through the gospel. I suspect that often we hide behind humility to allow us to avoid hard conversations that we then don't have. If I may say it respectfully, I think 2 Corinthians 13, 1-4 blows that argument out of the water. Rather than hindering this pursuing, giving, edifying, mournful, confronting love, our weakness is actually the key to it. As it ensures what we can and should do, it, as it ensures we don't mix up what we can and should do, that is, speaking the truth in love with what Christ himself does, dealing powerfully among us through his word. See, love doesn't change anyone. My words don't change anyone. Ultimately, it's Christ who does the heavy lifting. Christ changes us by the Spirit. We remain weak. But Christ is strong. So we should not be afraid to lovingly confront. Richard Baxter, an English Puritan, once wrote this in a book called The Reformed, The, uh, the Changed Pastor. Take heed, therefore, he says, that you don't connive at the sins of other people under the pretense of love. For that were to cross, to mix up the nature and the end of love. He says, friendship must be cemented by godliness. A wicked man can't be a true friend. And if you befriend their wickedness, you show that you're wicked yourselves. Pretend not to love them if you favour their sins and seek not their salvation. Don't pretend if you don't speak love into people's lives. Baxter goes on, by favouring their sins... You'll show your enmity to God. And then how can you love your brother? If you be their best friends, help them against their worst enemies. And don't think that all sharpness is inconsistent with love. Parents correct their children. God himself chastens every son whom he loves. Sometimes love confronts, which goes straight on to verses 5 and 6. It also challenges. As well as confronting what's very clearly and obviously wrong, love constantly pushes us as God's people to make sure we keep going and keep growing. Look at verses 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust you'll discover that you haven't failed the test. The false teachers in Corinth have caused a huge amount of confusion. Confusion over Paul's orthodoxy, confusion over the truth of the gospel, and clearly also some confusion over the Corinthians' own salvation. So Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He actually does that pretty often, doesn't it? Romans, Colossians, here. Now, since the Reformation, evangelicals have usually shied away from this kind of language. We don't want people to turn inwards, but outward to the objective work of Jesus on our behalf. 
But Paul's really happy using this language. Why? Well, because Paul believes that when we examine ourselves, the outcome will be really obvious. Either we'll realise, yes, Christ has brought me to repentance and faith, and there are signs of new life, markers in the words of verse 5, that Jesus Christ is in us. Or we'll wake up to the fact that we're not yet believers, that we haven't actually entrusted ourselves to Jesus, coming to him in repentance and faith. And Paul says, this is the loving thing to do. To remind people of the gospel that either says, oh yes, I am in Christ, I need to stop worrying and press on with him, loving other people, or to wake up to the fact that we are in desperate danger because we're not yet part of Christ. That's the loving thing to do. It's one of the great myths of our time that it's unloving to tell people the truth. But let's not fall for that. Telling people the truth about our God, Father, Son and Spirit is the most loving, vital thing in the world. We've got to love people enough to tell them whether they thank us for it or not. See, real love gently but firmly tells the truth, even challenging. And it also does one more thing. You'll see that in verses 7 to 10. Love prays. Paul prays for the Corinthians and he tells us exactly what he prays for them in the middle of this kind of fraught situation. Verse 7, we pray to God that you won't do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we've stood the test, but so that you'll do what's right, even though we may have seemed to fail. Ultimately, Paul doesn't really care about what they thought about him. The main game is not whether people look at Corinth and go, wow, Paul, what a church planter. It's that they look at the Corinthians and see that they are clinging to Christ in repentance and faith. That's what he prays for. And if they do that, if they keep trusting Jesus, they've nothing to fear from Paul. Verse 8, we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. If you've repented, all is well. In fact, even if they still think Paul's a wimp, he says that's okay. Verse 9, we're glad whenever we're weak, but you're strong. Our prayer is just that you be fully restored. Now, of course, Paul would love his future visit to Corinth to be a happy one because they come back to the gospel and are living wholeheartedly for Christ. Verse 10, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, so that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. He longs for God. He prays for God to work in their lives, enabling them to run back to Jesus, to embrace the gospel. See, that's what love does. See, love pursues, gives, builds, confronts, mourns, challenges, and prays. And in particular, prays for God to do his work in the lives of the people that we love by enabling all of us to grasp and to live out the gospel. So what should we pray for people who are bugging us, who are persecuting us? What should we pray for people who we think don't rate us, or don't agree with us, or don't even like us? We should pray lovingly that God would deepen his work in their lives. What should we pray for those who are closest to us? That God would deepen his work in their lives. For this is where love takes us. And with that, Paul draws this stunning letter to a close. Just look with me at what he says in 1311. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. 
Actually, those five simple statements sum up what he's been shooting for from chapter 1. He wants them to find joy in Christ, the relief that comes through repentance and forgiveness. He longs for them to encourage one another through the gospel and to stand together for the gospel as they bask in the peace of God, which is ours in and through the Lord Jesus. He longs for them to know that the God of love and peace is with them. Can you feel the warmth? It's so obvious that Paul loves these men and women deeply. He loves them like Christ himself. It's such a moving conclusion. That's why he tells them to greet each other with a holy kiss, which is a thoroughly Pauling pre-COVID expression of the purity and the unity, the close relationships, the family relationships that the love of Christ creates both within local churches and even between local churches as he passes on the greetings of all God's people. If, like me, you've been feeling the, the pain of not being able to, to shake hands or, or embrace or, or slap a brother or sister on the back, then you'll know something of what Paul's talking about here. The love of Christ draws us together. He signs off with these well-known words then, which underline that our God, Father, Son and Spirit, both calls us to all this and equips us to live this gospel-shaped, love-saturated life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is what the Corinthians needed. This is what Paul needed. This is what we need. For as Paul has said so often in this letter, when we are weak, then we're strong in Christ. Strong to love each other with the love that he's lavished on us. So let's do it. In the strength that's ours in Christ and for his glory.